what were the skills or the common threads that you think made you so darn successful at retail, industrial, and the automobile industry? Don't forget what you've learned. It was incumbent upon me to listen and learn before I leave. You learn from the past, but you got to look to the future, Ben. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. I've got a fun one for you today. And I mean, it's a doozy with Mr. Bob Nardelli, who is widely recognized as one of the best operating executives in the world with 52 years of experience leading major public corporations and private equity groups. Now, if you need to know a little bit about his background, and yes, you do, during his nearly 30-year tenure at GE, also known as General Electric Company, he quadruple operating profits for GE Power Systems from $5 billion with a B to $20 billion. And as the chairman and CEO, he then doubled the, the, the size of the Home Depot, from $45 billion to $91 billion, and then it went on to help save Chrysler Corporation during the financial institution meltdown. His new firm, Accelerate LLC Investment and Advisory Company, helps companies identify weaknesses and improve performance in clients, and, and as the clients include a number of Fortune 500 companies and privately held businesses. And one, he has many awards, but one of the coolest ones that I wanted to mention here that due to his support and commitment to veterans, he's received the U.S. Secretary of Defense Freedom Award twice. Bob, welcome to Lead the Team. Ben, thanks very much. Uh, look forward to uh, to our discussion. You're very kind with your uh, with your introduction. Well, it just kept going on and on and on. I'm like, how do I how do we make this impactful? And just kind of give them the cliff notes version. There's a lot going on here. Uh, Let's you know just start this out. I mean, what was it like being CEO of so many iconic organizations? GE, I mean GE Power Systems, the Home Depot, Chrysler, companies that everyone knows. What was it like? Yeah. Well, look, I uh, I'm very very blessed and fortunate uh, over my 52 years. Ben, I had uh, was posed with great opportunities, great challenges, and obviously had great men and women around me to accomplish mm. some of the things you referenced there. One of, one of the biggest compliments I got was uh, from Jack Welch in his book, where he cited, you know, Bob's the greatest and the best operating guy he's ever worked with. So that, uh, to me, that says yeah. a lot coming a from- A shout out from the master operator. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, they, you were, I mean, you had the nickname, the golden boy, as I've seen it in the GE days. And some called you little Jack, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And but you know, I, I wore that with a lot of pride, to be honest with you. Uh Jack and I first met uh, in 1971 at a technology fair where I was introducing uh, sublimation to the appliance uh, business. That's where I started in 1971. And what's and, sublimation for those that are well familiar? sublimation is the ability to implant uh colors like on a backsplash of an appliance as opposed to silk screen. So it was much more uh, efficient, uh, much more environmentally friendly. 
and Jack and I kind of hit it off there in the early 70s. Uh, you know, I started as uh, I get asked all the time, Ben, you know, how did you start? Well, I started as a manufacturing engineer on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the 70s, the early 70s, uh, you're too young, but I remember it was a tough market. And mm-hmm. I had uh, three job opportunities. One was selling life insurance. One was a management training program with Ponderosa Steakhouse. And then God bless me, I uh, was given the opportunity to start with General Electric, which was uh, just an unbelievable opportunity. And and when I'm asked, when I'm at these MBA programs, well, Bob, what what, what was your starting salary? And I'll say, you know, $9,600. Yeah. And they'll say a week. And I said, no, a year, $9,600 a year. So at yeah, GE, at GE, $9,600 so. a year, a year. Wow. Yes, Which was more than Ponderosa Steakhouse. Nothing a against steaks. <laughs> but still, wow. Best, so you, decision, best decision I ever made, Ben. Wow. Okay. So you met Jack after you'd already started at GE and you were in the trenches there? Yes, sir. And a lot of times people have an interesting first interaction with Jack Welch, from what I hear. He can he he was known for his, I guess, his bluntness and directness, swift decision making, as I understand. Uh what was your what was your first interaction with him like? Well, I think you're right. I mean, uh, the MO on Jack was, you know, he could be very intimidating. Uh, all the attributes yeah, yeah. that you mentioned were correct. And, you know, if you have self-confidence and you know what you're talking about and you're very direct mm-hmm. and succinct, Jack appreciated those traits. And fortunately, uh, that was me. I, uh, I've always been pretty direct. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I try to make it as simple and and, and and uh, direct when I'm speaking with someone. And so we basically hit it off. And uh, from that point on, we're able to, I was given tremendous opportunities and we stayed in touch until the very, very end when he was selecting his successor. All right. Well, I've heard about this. I've heard about this moment, but I want to hear it from you. What what was that like? And um, how'd you deal with it? Yeah. Well, look, um, you know, as you said, over 30 years um, and I either was in every division, ran every division or sat next to him at the at, at GE, uh, the private equity group, hmm. uh, you know, GE finance and so forth. So uh, GE capital be exact. And so I really felt that our team accomplished every objective. One of the things Jack said at uh, GE Power Systems that, you know, still stays with me today uh, you know, he flew down like he always does. And we did an operating review, HR review, and we assembled the team at the end of that day, uh, Ben. And he said, you know, Bob and team, I flew down on the plane, but I won't need a plane to fly back. And Jack had an unbelievable capability to express succinctly those kinds of comments that just elevated mm-hmm. your team. You know, just empowered us to do better. Wow. Yeah. Encouraged us to take on more challenges. And he was just wonderful at that. He would, you know, he could rip you apart. He put his arm around you and how's your wife? How's the kids? And it was always business, never personal when he was encouraging us to do better. He was mm-hmm. just an inspirational leader. And we stayed friends well after uh, that decision, Ben. That's how strongly, strong a relationship we had. And so, 
that moment has been, you know, he's, he's, it's, it's just like a business royalty sort of, you know, picking the, picking the successor of GE and here are the three and they go with, you know, goes with one of the other people, uh, Jeffrey, Jeff, and yes. then what talk about the roller coaster ride for, for you from that moment for the next, I don't know, 48 hours or so. Yeah. Well, it was a scene out of Casablanca. <laughs> it was Casablanca. Yes. It was like, uh, bring it back. It was Thanksgiving yeah. weekend. You know, I got, a, I got a call uh, from his assistant that Jack wanted to meet you personally. I knew that was not good. And oh. uh, so he mm. flew into the FBO, you know, the, the stairs dropped and we met, uh, it was cloudy, dark, sleeting. And he said, you know, I, I made a decision to go with Jeff. And instinctively, I said, well, we need to do an autopsy because I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> and, and that arrogance mm. didn't sit well with Jack. But again, <laughs> it's um, I thought, you know, work hard, make your numbers and at least you'll be considerate. So considered for the opportunity. So look, in retrospect, to even be considered for that was a tremendous honor. And, uh, you know, Jeff took over. Uh, Jim McNerney went on to 3M and then to Boeing. Uh, I went on to Home Depot and then Chrysler. So when you look back, it turned out fairly well for me. Yeah. So I have read that within uh, a couple days, you were basically taking the job at Home Depot. I mean, you were as soon as people found out that you're available, it was just. Yes. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. It was, did you hesitate was, or how did you know, like, cause you're coming out of GE and this is limited. At least my other question, my, my question for you, I think you've got a really unique insight here is crawl about crossover knowledge because it would have like, like the 3M gig seems like a very, even though it's different than GE, it seems like a more natural sort of business industry hop you're going to lead one of the top retailers. Um, and, and what is your, so maybe through that lens, what's your opinion on crossover knowledge for leaders? And what are those skills that leaders can take across industries and, and have immense success? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of questions packed in there. So yeah, sorry about that. Take them how you want to. No, listen, um, I'd be less than honest if I didn't tell you I was heartbroken over not given the opportunity. I mean, you don't train for that many years. Tom Brady doesn't go into the Super Bowl saying it's okay to come in second, right? And so, yeah. but then, you know, you, you you can either get in the fetal position and, and uh, feel sorry for yourself, you yeah. dust yourself yeah. off and say, let's take on the next opportunity. I, I, I was really very, very fortunate. You're exactly right. It was... I notified over the weekend, uh, went to work Monday. The chairman and CEO of Home Depot flew to uh, Albany. We had dinner. I flew to Atlanta on Saturday, met with the search committee, and then basically started on Monday. And wow, you, your last day at GE was Friday, and you started on Monday at Home Depot? The, the, the following Monday. Yeah, I went to work Monday, got interviewed in Albany Wednesday, Saturday, Atlanta, and uh, was offered and started on oh. that following Monday. Yes. That was sir. a quick vacation. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm not, vacations are stressful for me. I, I'm, not, I'm not good at vacations, Ben. All right. Well, 
Well, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that vacations are stressful, but I want, but first, so crossover knowledge, crossover skills. Yeah. Because a lot of times I really feel like leaders, you know, they kind of niche themselves and, you know, in one industry and what, I mean, what's, you know, reflecting back over your career, what were the skills or the common threads that you think made you so darn successful at retail industrial and the automobile industry? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, again, another, another, uh, advice from Jack, don't forget what you've learned. Right. And we, we really, uh, honed our capabilities at GE about the portability of skills. I started in appliances. Mm -hmm. I went Mm -hmm. to lighting was running a metallurgical product line. I had a tungsten ore mine in Winnemucca, Nevada. So that was a new experience. Then was running the commercial lighting business, introduced compact fluorescence, high-speed horizontal. We were producing 6,000 four-foot fluorescence and a 100-yard piece of equipment untouched by human hands. Then I went to uh, transportation, making locomotives and then power systems. And, and each time you can imagine, you know, the organization there would say, Bob, what, what do you know about? Well, like when I went to home, what do you know about retail? I said, well, I've, I've sold things in the past for quite some time. And um, the board really wanted me to bring organizational hmm. discipline to what's a little bit of run and gun. So it was incumbent upon me to listen and learn before I lead. So I had a lot hmm. of terminology and I had okay. you know, to be able to apply what I knew, but learn and be open to what I needed to understand about Home Depot and retail. And I set about doing that. Um, For example, I would say, look, what got us here won't get us there. And, and, and that's one of my, that's one of my favorite books right here that I carry around with me. You know, what (laughs) great reminder right on Bob Nardelli's desk. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you respect the past, Hmm. uh, you learn from the past, but you got to look to the future, Ben. And, you know, you're, you're moving from an analog environment to a digital environment. I'll give you a little anecdote. When I got there, you know, I said, I want to send an email. And they said, well, you can't. And I said, you mean I cannot or I may not? Because there's a difference, right? And they said, no, you cannot. I said, well, why is that? They said, well, we're on Lotus Notes. Now, this was in 2000. Right? I remember the Lotus Notes days. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that was that was a first experience, right, to understand where we were and and then even more so, why is it taking us so long to close? And mm-hmm. they said, well, we're on Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, we, we, we basically do that somewhat manually. And I said, this was in 2000. I said, well, let's take a bold leap into the 80s and let's put in a whole new accounting system. Right. So we installed SAP, the entire suite without a glitch. And, wow. and that's the good news, right? So no one even knew we went through that transformation. We had an that's unbelievable big. team. And it's interesting, uh, SAP was was side by side with me. Bill McDermott, who was running, mm-hmm. eventually ran SAP and now running we, we Serve, promised he'd be the guy. You know, it wasn't one of these launch and leave kinds of salesmen. And it was a, a mm-hmm. wonderful experience and installation. Well, yeah. Having been through SAP implementations and other organizations, yeah, I, it can go sideways in a hurry. And yeah. so, well but done. I had there. a lot to learn there, Ben. I mean- yeah. I, I would walk about 300 stores a year, right? And, uh, and, and so again, almost, yeah, that one, 
I want to say 365 will be one every day, but yeah. you've got we, sometimes we do three, four, five a day. We do a solid week. Don't forget, we opened a thousand stores while I was there. A thousand stores. Well, that that sounds. I mean, how and that's wow. I mean, process. So you're bringing so a couple of things that's coming leaping out of me. One is you started with listening. Listening goes across. Listen before you lead. You're jumping industries. You're jumping companies. Listen first versus coming in because you could have come in and said, "Hey, I I GE'd my way to success before. Hey, everybody." I'm here to GE this situation. But you flipped it and you said, hey, I'm not forgetting what I've learned there, but I'm here to listen first. And it helps you prioritize and 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 set the set the stage there. And yeah. so then it sounds like a, when you get to a thousand stores, though, that sounds like you're bringing GE process well, to be able to get that kind of growth. Yeah, going. I mean, on that initiative, uh, that's one of several initiatives that that we were able to put in place at, at Home Depot. So we had we had a three-inch binder on every opportunity. We would look at household income. We'd look at okay. demographics. We'd look at every aspect in a site that we wanted to uh, develop a store. I would bring in the regional managers and, and, the, and the vice president of store operations. Do you agree with this location? And here is the budget that we're signing up so that we can mm. get a return on our investment cash on cash. And then if we all signed up, I, I never missed, I never missed one of those sessions where we decided we were going to plant a flag and we mm. had a great team. I mean, I participated because quite at the end, at the end of the day, it was a lot of capital. That's all about capital allocations, both human capital allocations and, and physical capital allocations. And we should talk about those. Those are very different. And so we would make those decisions, but we would open a new store every 24 to 40. So we went from 1,000 to 2,000. But the other thing is, and yes, we did take some of the practices about information. Facts are friendly. Let's not just wing it, right? Let's look at, let's look deep into the financials, look deep into the numbers and make sure we're making an informed decision on all of those things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Ben, we went from zero to number one in Mexico. I was, I had my family, we were driving down the coast from Cancun hmm. I'm looking around, I'm saying, what are all these retail stores doing here? And we're not. So I called hmm. my guys, my team. I said, come on down here. Well, I, I'm here. Let's, let's take a drive and let's figure it out. So we bought, we bought what I'll call a platform. And that turned into an unbelievable success story because of the people we had running it. And I always believed in hmm. if uh, acquisition integration is a core competency, and if it is, mm -hmm. it's a big competitive advantage. So our products through their channel, their products through our channel, the okay. best of the best was fantastic, Ben. So it's identifying the secret sauce of what, of whatever special to the company you're running or the team and merging that with a lot of your knowledge from what I'm hearing and, you, and your experience to kind of make that, make that all come together. Um, what was another big competitive advantage is yeah. I quickly understood with the team, the pro customer. And so we would launch them, you know, he or she would build one home, two homes, three homes, then they'd leave us. So if you, if you look, mm -hmm. if you understand home, home Depot, we are dominant with the pro customer. We put in a pro desk, we put in a, a specific pro, pro door. Uh, we created home Depot supply, mm -hmm. went from zero to about 12 billion. We did 50 acquisitions in 18 months to build home Depot supply. We bought whatever the pro customer said we didn't have so that we could serve them more efficiently. 
And that was one of the biggest changes we've made there. Mm. Uh, the other secret sauce there, Ben, is we had a we had a hundred thousand square foot bunkered facility. So if you walk into Home Depot today and you look at rigid power tools, you look at Hampton Bay, Glacier Bay, Ryobi, Husky, mm-hmm. Workforce, those are all house brands. And we gained 30 points of margin every time we did that. So creating your own brand, leveraging your knowledge as an organization, creating great tools for those pros. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So many cool strategies there that worked so effectively. Now, you mentioned vacation and you mentioned being in 300, you know, going through 300 stores in a year. I've heard that uh, also you travel or did travel, maybe over 200 days a year. Are Just you still about, maintaining that? Pretty much. I was. Uh, I left uh, last week on Monday and got home Saturday night right before the holiday weekend. So thinking about that, how over these years have you kept yourself healthy to be able to maintain that kind of intense travel schedule? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm blessed. Sue and I have been married 52 years also. And, <laughs> also. And we, so that oh, coordinated, that, that corresponds with your work. Yes. So you we, got married we, and you went to work all the same year. Well, we met as freshmen in college and we got okay. married right after I graduated. Yeah. And uh, she has been unbelievably the core of, uh, of the family. You know, with the children, we've moved 13 times over that period. And she's, you know, yeoman's work, sell the house, pack it, move it, unpack it, move in. So she deserves, she deserves more credit than I get. I'll tell you that. Oh, wow. So having a good partner at home, having a good team at home has helped yeah. kept you going. When you travel, are you thinking about, or maybe your team's thinking about, Bob needs to work out. Bob needs to have certain kinds of food. I mean, you to be able to keep going for that long, long a period. What? How do you plan out your travel to to avoid burnout? Well, I, I I'm uh, I'm pretty basic guy, Ben. You know, I was I'm from Old Forge, Pennsylvania. It's a coal mining town right outside of Scranton. My mom and dad lived through the Depression. Hmm. My dad served in World War II. My mom took a train from Old Forge to Fort Benning, Georgia. They got married at the fort. My dad got shipped out. And so what they instilled in me is the importance of hard work, uh, of, of having ethics. Uh, your word is your bond. You know, your brand is your credibility. And so I know some people require different types of things when they travel. I tried to you know, keep my focus on the mission of the travel and not the trappings of the travel. Okay. All right. So what does, I mean, what keeps you going this long? I mean, you, you could have just retired and just, you know, do something, just play golf, but here you are, you know, you've launched your own company. Uh, you, you just going from one intense thing to the next. And so what is it? Well, I, I, you know, I turned 75 uh, last week or two weeks ago. Happy birthday. Yeah, thank I'm you. I'm not going to sing to you, <laughs> but happy birthday. Thank you, Ben. Look, I, I've always been very active in my entire life, and I've been blessed you know, to be able to keep that pace. And I just think it's important. Hmm. You know, I've known a lot of colleagues that basically took that path 
uh, of retirement and playing golf and fishing. And I think people have to do what they're comfortable doing. So good for them. I mean, I would never criticize that path. For me, I've got to stay engaged. I have to stay energized. I mean, some of the traits I look for in people that I hire, hopefully are the traits that I have. And that's Hmm. high energy, the ability to energize, have an entrepreneurial spirit, much like a childlike curiosity about everything you do. And then most importantly, execution. That's what I would talk to Jack about. You know, we started with these three E's and I said, Jack, we're missing the fourth E, execution, because that's what it's all about. Strategies are only realized when you execute and activate. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so, so good. So it sounds like your passion for business and getting teams together and leading teams just, yeah. just drives you. Well, I, I, I love doing that. You know, I, I talked to a group of entrepreneurs uh, last week. It's a program sponsored by EY. And, you know, we just had a great discussion about entrepreneurialism and, and creativity and the kinds of things you should think about. And um, I, I enjoy doing that. You know, I'll have a group of students here next week. We'll have about 25 high school students that I'll, you know, spend, you know, three or four hours with. They're, they're on their summer break. They're getting ready to go to college. So I try to do that. Uh, I try to share, you know, some of my experiences with individuals who might benefit from, you know, if they take away one or two learnings, that's a successful session. Yeah, yeah I love that. And y'all, before uh, before we got on and we were talking, I mean, Bob's on several boards. And uh, I mean, just if anything, you're just picking up. At 75 years old, you're just going harder than, harder than before. And I, I find that to be incredibly inspiring, actually. Very inspired. Yeah, well, you're kind. You know, I so, I, uh, I played athletics. I, I was an athlete all yeah. through high school and football, college. right? Yeah, sir. Yeah. And um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn mm-hmm. a lot about your teammates who depend upon you, and you depend upon them. And one of the things that you know, football taught me was every 30 seconds you're making a decision, so you have to have some mm-hmm. muscle memory. And our coach, Coach Mudra, was a, had a PhD. And was teaching us psycho cybernetics, which is a very a very sophisticated term for when you're when you're watching a film and you're watching that opponent, you look for their ticks. Are they back mm-hmm. on their heels? Which means it's probably going to be a pass. Or do mm-hmm. they tend to lean left or right? Are they soft on their on their hands? You know all kinds of things. So that at the moment of of when that buzzer goes off every thirty seconds. You, you don't have a lot of time to think. So you have to have that muscle memory in place to be able to make decisions. So I, I, I try to make decisions quickly, hmm. but with information. Uh, so I, I, do, I, I, I get criticized a lot of times for being too granular, but I think being granular helps you make more informed decisions because my, hmm. when I go to a new job, the rate of my learning is, is the rate with which the company is going to advance. So I kind of have to be a dry sponge in a bucket of water and absorb everything as quickly as I can so that I can be productive and contribute to the overall strategy, structure, and people. That's the key going forward. Really, I really like that metaphor of the dry sponge. I reminds me of washing, washing cars back in the day and just absorbing the sponge, absorbing the water. What think back to the times that you've done that, or maybe the most uh challenging times to do that for you to, to learn that quickly. What were 
some of the things that you did to absorb the information quickly and um, digest it so you can actually start taking uh, making decisions on it. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. You know, when I went to Chrysler, Steve Feinberg, the founder of Cerberus Capital Management, asked me to join the team. We're going to do some due diligence. And he's a true patriot. His interest in, in, in basically extracting Chrysler from Daimler was to stand up an American legacy. And so that was an interesting experience mm -hmm. to do that. And, and what I learned there was, again, not uncommon. When I showed up, they said, Bob, you're not a car guy. So what do you know about cars? I said, well, car guys kind of got you into this problem. So let's figure <laughs> out. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good comeback. <laughs> and let's figure out how we, how we can work together. Yeah. And so my style always was to meet my direct reports in their office. I'd go to them. They didn't have to come to me. Mm. And I'd ask them, what do you like? What don't you like? What are your aspirations? You know, what would you like to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to, to mix business and personal. So I have a good understanding of that person. What are your aspirations? What do you want to do? How can I help you do that? Then mm. I spend about 300 hours meeting their staffs, the staff of the staff and really trying to assess talent and capabilities with strategy, structure, and people. And at the end of the day, you know, it's interesting. I have this vision of an inverted triangle, Ben, where everybody wants authority. They go home, hey, honey, I, you know, I got this big title and this and this. So everybody wants to have authority. It feels so good to have all that authority. Yes. Yeah. Well, then there's responsibility, the next layer down. Hmm. And some of them want responsibility. But you know, at the, at the peak of the triangle, Darn few want accountability. Darn few want accountability. And so I've always been a big proponent mm. of my success is vested in their success. In mm. other words, I, I can't, as the CEO with fiduciary responsibility, be successful singularly. I have to mobilize. I believe there's no first among peers. And I believe strongly in delegation, not abdication. A lot mm. of CEOs will bark and launch and leave. I like to be able to delegate and follow up meticulously on those assignments as to how we're making progress. So, you know, when I was running GE Transportation, we'd meet 5.30 every Monday morning. Mm. And I would know because they knew every locomotive that was out of service and what are we doing to get customer satisfaction. We were, we were focused on net promoter score long before it got introduced at net promoter mm. score. And then I would get 300 of my factory workers in the auditorium, and we would have a weekly, it was GE transportation system, we'd have a gets together. And so we would tell them, here's what happened last week. Here's what we got to do this week. Hey, I can get this order from Norfolk Southern, but I need you guys to commit to this, this, and this. You can either commit to it, or we won't take the order. So I was always very candid and very front. When, when, when I went to Chrysler, here's an interesting, here's an interesting story. Uh, I met with I met with the president of the UAW, and uh, that's uh, the United Auto Workers. Auto Workers, right? The yeah. big union entity that that backs the entire automobile industry in the Huge, U.S. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I met with Mr. Gettelfing, and uh, I met him at the union hall, and he walked in. He had a stack of papers like this, and he had one sheet of paper, and he put them on the table. And I thought, uh oh, where is this going? Because I, I I I didn't want to take that job unless I knew I had his support. It's so important because they're opera because they're they're such a huge piece of of every single car that's delivered, right? I mean, Everyone, yeah. Every not only not only primary but tier ones and two and three suppliers mm -hmm. also. 
there's like 10, 10 to 12 uh, jobs for every one job in the factory. So that was uh, a very high stakes conversation. That was they are. To go down. They are. And so I thought, mm -hmm. oh, where, what, what's going to happen here? So he took the first sheet and turned it over. And it was a news story about Jack Welch, who said he wanted to put factories on a barge and move them to the lowest cost country. So he flipped 10 pages mm -hmm. over, you know, with stories like that. And then he flipped over a blank page. He said, I can't find any story about you was anti-labor. And he said, so I think we're going to get along fine. We stayed in touch well after that. And without his support, we would not have been able to save Chrysler. We opened the books. I met with him regularly with, the, with my team, with Tommy Lasorda and all the guys, Ron Kolka, blah, 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 all of them. And so we were seamless in our mission to save Chrysler and those jobs. Then I, I have a three ring binder this thick with people sending me notes. I, I, I didn't send out an email every Friday. I send it out spontaneously when something happened that they need to know about. So mm -hmm. I tried to hear it from me first, not in the paper. And they would say, Bob, I'm third generation. I know you're doing some gut wrenching changes, but we believe you're doing the best for us. Now, you talk about gut wrenching decisions. We had to furlough about 30 some thousand families. Not, not, not employees, families, because if they're numbers to you, you're in the wrong job because it affects mm. everything that they have the same aspirations you and I have. Children through school, pay for a house, maybe some recreational stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So you can never, never take lightly the responsibility, not only fiduciarily to your shareholders, but also your stakeholders. And, mm. and I take that very seriously uh, and personally when we have to go through that trauma. Such a powerful leadership perspective. Um, to remind yourself, when you're leading a big team, you're leading a big company, that these are families and it, it informs all of your decision-making. So when you're making a decision like that, that affects so many people, and you're doing it for the long-term benefit of everyone moving forward together, how do you deal with that? Like, what is your outlet for stress relief yeah. so you can you, you can press on yeah well you, you have to keep it in perspective and and this was not even long-term decisions and we we were burning about a billion dollars a month we had to take our break even from 17.6 million units a year that's the seasonally adjusted rate for the auto industry down to 9.6 on an inflation adjusted basis that was worse than world war ii Oh. And so we had to we had to conserve cash. You know, the old saying cash is king. Never was it more true when we were going through that financial meltdown in 07, 08 and 09. And and I think I applaud our team because the viability plan we submitted to the car czar was very viable. And I think it's what kept that business alive and that brand alive. I, I couldn't be more proud of that team and what they did in, in, in that adverse environment. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So what's it like testifying before Congress? <laughs> you know, I went back to the, my syllabus. I never saw that in my MBA program. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't find that section. I could not find it, but I, I sat through four of them, hmm. and it was um, 
it was uh i'm trying to be a polite word here it was <laughs> it was um an we interesting, can edit if need be <laughs> <laughs> it was it was interesting to see Oof. how that works with no disrespect and and not to have a broad brush but a lot of it was a c-span moment where the either congressman or senator would walk in just before their their five minutes and they would sit down and ask you questions sometimes the same question the gentleman before asked mm. uh, but it was more i thought we were going to have very productive discussions but it was really sometimes got to be a little bit of a gotcha uh, we had one session was six hours without a break and and you had this little timer in front of you ben that you had five minutes and so the senator or congressperson could speak for four minutes and 59 seconds. And then you would try to answer and who was ever chairing the committee would, would pound the gavel a little bit and your mic would be shut off. So, mm. so you didn't have a lot of time to respond. So it was more of a one way uh, scolding. Why are you guys here? You know, asking for money. It's your fault. And with all due respect, when I went from a, FICA, a requirement of a FICA score of 500 to 750 with 5,000 on the hood, my customer base at that time, you know, I wasn't Lamborghini. I wasn't serving those customers. I was serving the heart of, of, of America customers that needed transportation and they couldn't make that jump. And so I got a call one night and said, Bob, you can't lease anymore. Mm. So 60% of wow. my business in Canada was leasing. And so that's kind of the challenges that team faced, but they pushed through that adversity to save the company. Wow. What an incredible moment. I remember watching some of those. I mean, I didn't watch the entire thing, but it was intense. Yes. And uh, man, a, a six hour <laughs> berating or conversation or whatever it happened to be, I bet that was. Yeah. 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 The, and, and, and you know, it's interesting. Way. It was interesting. We were told, you know, you really need to drive here. You guys make cars. So you need to drive from Detroit here for these hearings. And so, yeah, they then the, then the press wanted to follow us. And so yeah, you know, it was a lot of heat in the darkness of the night. I'm in there driving, you know, our, our Aspen from from Detroit uh, down to Washington. And believe it or not, though, where did you stay? What hotel do you stay at? Well, you know, I pull out my receipt from uh, Holiday Inn. That's how I got so smart, you know, the night before. Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> free, <laughs> free marketing on C-SPAN. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was it was oh. interesting. I look back at it now and, you know, we can smile about it. But it was, it was, well, you, you know, you're, 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 this is like being at, uh, you know, in Vegas and you're either on the red or black block and, and there was no, you know, so we were playing for high stakes. It was critically, critically important. Yes. Yeah. Well, th thanks for sharing that. I, you really shared a lot today on that. I was going to ask about handling crisis and I knew about the Chrysler. I mean, a little bit of that, about that. And what a great playbook for leaders to think about, you know, how to go through with your team and your conversations and think about the bigger picture. I'd like to, like to step into a, an area we haven't talked about yet which is about sabbaticals and for the listeners that might be a little bit unexpected, but uh, Bob, you've got an interesting take on that. What's, what's your opinion on sabbaticals? Yeah. Well, sabbatical for me had, had a, uh, 
very maybe unique and, and special understanding. So I was moving through a variety of, of positions and seats at General Electric. And there was one particular move that uh, they've asked me to make. And I didn't think it was good for me and my family. So I called Jack and said, I'm going to leave. And uh, this was when Dukakis was running for president. And, and Jack said, you know, get your up here to Fairfield. I want to talk to you. And so I flew up there and he said, what, 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 why are you leaving? I said, well, it's not, there's no issue between you and Jack, you and I, Jack. It's what's between you and I that's creating a little bit of a, of a dust up. And I gave my word. So I, I left GE for a short period of time, Ben, and I went mm -hmm. to run case construction equipment worldwide. And that's what I call my, my sabbatical. So I left never, never, ever thinking I would go back to GE. You know, you kind of burn your bridge, right? So a couple of years, um, I got a call and uh, was asked if I would consider coming back to GE. I said, well, look, I never wanted to leave. So yeah, I'm, I'm open to coming back. So I met with Chief Human mm -hmm. Resource Officer, met with Jack, et cetera. And, and in, in typical Jack fashion, he said, you know, Bob, I got to send you to purgatory. I, I, can't, I can't let you come back. And then people will think that's what they have to do career-wise. So no, no disrespect to the Canadians. So he sent me up to Toronto to run the Canadian Appliance Manufacturing Company for about mm -hmm. nine months. And then here, here's how this worked at GE, Ben. Is, so I get a call on Wednesday. What are you doing? I start telling about the business. He says, I don't care about that. Get in your car, drive down to Erie, Pennsylvania over the weekend. On Monday, I'm going to announce that you're, you're, you're taking over GE Transportation. So it wasn't like today, well, wow. let me talk to my wife and what's my title and what's my salary. You know, I was just tickled to death to get the opportunity. I knew, you know, I'll do my job and the rest of that will take care of itself. So, mm. so I did that. And then I was in Zurich, fast forward, closing a deal with ABB for GE Transportation Systems. And uh, Jack calls from the hospital. Remember, he had the, the, the work done on his heart, right? The mm -hmm. bypass. Well, the, the, the little, you know, what was really going around GE was that really, the real operation was to see if he had a heart, not to see if he was getting a bypass. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, kidding aside, you know, I, I, I love Jack. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. he said, well, how's it going? I start telling him about the deal. Don't care about that. Once you get on a plane, uh, fly up to Fairfield, because on Monday, I'm going to introduce you as the CEO of GE Transportation or GE Power Systems. I said, well, what do I know about nuclear power and gas turbines? And look, you, you know how to do that. Just don't screw it up. And Just don't so screw I, it up. Okay. Yeah. So I fly home. Uh, Sue said, oh, you're, you're home early. I said, well, I've got a pack. Where are you going, Fairfield? What do you do? Well, Monday, I'm, we're moving to... Uh, you know, disconnected. Mm. I'm going to take over a power system. So that's the way it was back then. And uh, it was just fine that, with me. Those I, were I would... called working sabbaticals, I think. Your yeah. sabbatical. So so this ties into some stuff that I, I was, I was in, in my reading in preparation for this conversation. With you're a believer in horizontal or lateral promotions. And I thought that's an interesting way to say it because most people don't consider a lateral move a promotion. But from your perspective, it is. What tell us? Tell us about that. Yeah, listen, I, I'm a firm believer in, in, in those. So I started as a manufacturing engineer, 
uh, individual contributor. Then back then the terminology would you would be like a, a unit manager. You know, you would have a section like steel receiving and processing or assembly and so on and so forth. So I was offered the opportunity to take over assembly of appliances and we were pushing out three refrigerators a minute. So there's 150 people on a deck, elbow to elbow. We did a balance two to get mm-hmm. optimum productivity per person. And my, all of my colleagues said, are you nuts? You got to be there from five in the morning till nine at night. Why would you want to do that? That's that's degrading. I mean, that's not that's not human. And I said, well, listen, if I don't get that experience now, like you guys don't want it, when I move up, I won't have the benefit of that learning. And so for me, horizontal promotions, you know, it's it's like that analogy, a tall tree and a strong wind blows over. If it has a good foundation and a trunk and it's grown up and matured, then you're able to, don't forget what you learned, and be able to apply those learnings in new challenging uh, situations. So I took every opportunity to not only do what was my job, but what could I volunteer for? So I volunteered to be the manufacturing rep on the features and appearance council for marketing. I I went through a two-year program at GE so that I could take my core academic curriculum curriculum and convert it to the GE talk, GE terminology, right? Hmm. And then I went and got my MBA. So I was, I, I, I got my MBA, but I would go three nights a week and Saturday because I needed to get it done for fear that I would be asked to move and lose, lose those credit hours and so forth. <laughs> so I'm a firm believer, okay. the more you can learn horizontally, the more effective you're going to be at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, I like that. And you mentioned it, and, I, and I, it really resonated with me on the tree metaphor. It's like the roots. Your horizontal moves establish broader roots in the organization you're learning. And I can easily see you, you, you can withstand the storms or the change or the adaptability. That applies to that applies to artificial intelligence, right? It applies to whatever. That, that kind of mindset when it comes to learning. When... And and it, when is it too much for a leader, for a CEO to get into the weeds? When do you say, look, you know, I need to stay strategic. I don't need to get down to that level of detail. Like, how do you know when you've hit that threshold of, okay, I'm not going any deeper on this topic. I got other people that are going to worry about that. Yeah, but so two points. When you let, when you say, I got other people to worry about it, you do. But how do you know that their interpretation of their decisions of are consistent with what's in your head about strategic vision? What's mm-hmm. the mission? How do we, you know, how do you, the old saying, how do you connect the dots? One of the, one of the best compliments I got from a board member at Home Depot was, holy cow, Bob can see around corners. Mm-hmm. And I really pride myself. I took a course in the 70s called Kepner Trago. Mm-hmm. Fast forward. It was a version of Black Swan. What could go wrong and what can I do to prevent that from going wrong? I'm a big believer in that. Preparation. I, I take my, my weekly schedule every Saturday and Sunday and meticulously go down. Am I prepared for every meeting? Am mm. I prepared for every discussion? Because it's only, you know, it's courteous. You, you, you have to respect the other people's time who, that are going into that meeting. You have to be equally prepared. And I've been blessed with good retention where I could have a meeting, go away and come back and pick up right where where we left off. 
And so yeah. I've been blessed with, with that ability. And, and that's has served me and my team well, so that we have continuity of thought and, and decision making. A lot of CEOs, to your example, will go in and bark, pop, 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 do this, do that. And, and I call it the launch and leave. The team eventually figures out, well, he or she are just barking and they aren't coming back. So there's no accountability. One, one of the things I learned from, you know, you learn what to do and not do. There was this uh, plant manager I worked for, uh, ex-military guy, and he was a rough and tumble guy. And he said, Bob, what, what, what have you learned from me? You know, with great pride. And I said, you know, John, what I learned from you is what not to do. I said, with you, every issue is a nail and you're the hammer uh, and you're not inspiring. See, I think a leader, hmm. uh, this is important. A leader has to inspire, has to create a culture of how to versus hmm. why not. And then you recognize, reward and encourage those, those team members to achieve things that they never thought they could achieve. I, I, I would say, let's go, let's go do this. I never thought we'd be able to get it done. But those teams would, they would just perform and amaze me. And then you recognize, reward, and promote, right? Mm-hmm. So let me let me talk about this capital thing is there's two types of capital allocation. There's physical cap- capital, right? Where you put down a building or a piece of equipment. It depreciates the day you put it down. Mm-hmm. When you do capital allocation for human capital, it's a double entendre. The person appreciates the investment you're making in he or she, and their personal value appreciates. And you mm-hmm. hope that stays within your company, but if not, you've, you've enhanced that. One of my biggest accomplishments that I feel so proud of is I look at the people that are running companies today. You know, when I left Home Depot, the gentleman I brought in behind me ran it. The guy I mentored ran it, the person running it now I hired in 2002. The guy running Lowe's work, we hired him. The guy running Tractor Supply, Floor and Decor, Carol Tomei was my CFO running UPS. I mean, I take great pride. See, that's one of the things I learned from Jack is Hmm. investing in in succession. That's the only way, you know, that's your key to success. And if they leave the company to achieve other great heights that they may not have been able to achieve with you, that's a great thing. People who do things make mistakes. They never make the biggest mistake of all, doing nothing, Mm. doing nothing. So I've had my share over the years. We've all had our shares, to be honest. And but that's what you that's what you learn from. Well, Ooh, a lot in that response. Thank you for that. So, so cool. I love the the the, the different analogies that you're giving to us. And we're, and we're starting to wrap up on this. So I wanted to, you know, two, two, well, one last question, take it anywhere you want to go, but I'm hoping you'll weave into your perspective on veterans and those those two awards that that you're recognized with explain why that's been so important for you and then maybe just share your parting thought for our listeners today yeah we can never do enough for the men and women that sacrifice in some cases their lives in years of service to allow us to do what we do and to have the freedom and the democracy that we live in I take that so seriously to the bottom of my heart. Uh, So I've always felt that we can't do enough to recognize and reward what it is they do. For example, as I said, we hired 35,000 veterans. Why? Because, you know, the old saying, they don't want a handout, they want a hand up. 
the greatest thing you can do for those men and women is give them give them the dignity of a job. When I was at Chrysler, they could take tests right before they were uh, right before they left, right discharge, and then they could go to work at a dealership in their hometown. So they came back to a job. They came back to respect, you know, a, a respectable position, earning away, et cetera. Now they could always move on and so on and so forth, but it, we gave them that first step. So in addition to the, to the 35,000 veterans, we also hired 500 junior military officers hmm. on a two-year rotation of program. They'd work in the store, merchandising, et cetera. They came out and, run, and they ran a $100 million store for us. So one time, a little bit of a story, you know, I'm drilling this veteran and asking him questions and firing away. And I said, son, you don't you don't seem too intimidated by these questions. Well, sir, getting your rear end shot off is a lot more intimidating than you. So there was a, <laughs> there was a little bit of listening and learning. And, no, that's a perspective talking to your boss. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> they never let me down. They yeah. never, never, ever let me down. The mission was key. You know, we had a hard time recruiting in some of the locations I moved to, as you can imagine. They didn't care. Living in some of these locations is better than living in Afghanistan or in Desert Storm or so forth. And so the job was the center of attraction for them, not not so much the community. And so to this day, I mean, anything we 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 uh, if their pay was lower than what they left, we, we filled a gap. If the water mm-hmm. heater burst in their house, we'd fix it. We would set up communication systems every 30 minutes. You could come in, husband, wife, family, whatever, whatever, and you could talk to whoever was deployed over there. What I'm most proud about it was post 9-11. I was with Warren Buffett uh, in Omaha. He was a supplier. We were going to walk stores. Of course, then we had that tragedy. I got in a car. I drove straight through from Omaha to, to, to Atlanta. We have a, one of the best crisis mm-hmm. centers. We were on ground zero with Rudy. We were the first ones there, last ones to leave. We started moving shoring timber to the Pentagon from California to Washington. We did the memorial behind the Pentagon. Um, So our team, I like to say at Home Depot, we shined our brightest when communities were facing their darkest hours, Hurricane Katrina, et cetera. Our teams were right on the ground helping rebuild and bring bring order to chaos. And, and you swell with pride when your team does something like that, Ben. It, it, absolutely. Yeah. What an amazing legacy. People automatically think, well, it must be your customers or it must be the stock price or it must be you know, the, re- the financial record. But the legacy of that, my friend, where you're impacting communities on their darkest days, yeah. I mean, that lives on yeah. and affects generations in a positive way. You know, Ben, the, the other thing, if I can just for a moment here also, is uh, the other thing I was blessed with is you know, I do a lot of work with EY. And uh, I was I worked with uh, them and Ed Breen when we put Dow and DuPont together. So I understand the importance of, of mergers and acquisitions and how you select teams and how you select a supplier base, et cetera. You know, you bring two groups together. And you pick the best of the best, right? Mm. Whether it's supplier, whether it's an individual, whether it's locations. I was involved with uh, Starboard, with uh, Smith, who, who was running that, that business at the time, Jeff Smith. And we, we went to ISS and pitch, bringing home, uh, Office Depot and Office Max together. So we were instrumental in doing that. 
I worked on B&W and we did the spin to BWXT, which is, you know, doing tremendously well. We spun that business out. So when I'm doing private equity now, I am really have a, a, mm. a, a competitive advantage because most of the companies we look at, let's say we look at 200 companies, majority of those I have some familiarity with. So when we go in in a management meeting, I can pretty well drill down and sort through the viability of investing in that company. Mm. And, yeah. and so, yeah. It's, you've invested in career, you've invested in people for so long. And a lot of them, it sounds like you're out in the, out in other companies, you know them, you've worked with them, you foster positive working relationships. Yeah. You know, I was at a conference mm. last week and again, I was, uh, so I got to do it. I was with uh, the attorney general, Bill Barr oh. and uh, with Mike Pompeo. <laughs> wow. And uh, you know, it's, I, I've been blessed to have relationships with some of the most uh, successful and influential CEOs, people, government, et cetera, around the world. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know how else to say it. I've just been really blessed uh, and, and appreciative of all of the people I had the opportunity to work with. And so I, I would encourage your audience out there is I would dig in, I would understand you know, the fundamentals of the business. I would understand, you know, the challenges you're facing. I, I think today, and a CEO today is challenged by a factor of 10, given the, the breadth and depth of constituents that they're trying to satisfy. Mm. And what I learned is if you try to satisfy everyone, you'll satisfy no one. So stay true to your mission, continue to inspire and encourage your teams, learn from the past, move from the analog to the digital, and always be looking forward as to what are those opportunities. When you buy a platform, for example, we did, we grew it from 90 to 500 in a couple of years, 500 million. And that's through very selective strategic bolt-ons that added technology that we could have developed, but, but we can buy it and have it overnight to get a competitive advantage. So you really need to, you, you got to have your antennas up all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Work-life balance for me is not right for everyone. You know, it's not 50-50. You know, sometimes it's 80-20. And people that want 50-50 is fine. It's just that may not allow you to get where you want to get. So you make those trade-offs. And I always say, you know, don't, don't go back and say coulda, shoulda, woulda. Make informed mm -hmm. decisions, both in business and in your career aspirations. And as an entrepreneur, don't let your ambition exceed your cash capability. <laughs> That's a great one to wrap up on and a yeah. very important one. You say, as we talked about earlier, cash is king. So thanks for that. that yeah. Bob. Bob, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.